Thanks for y'all for coming out tonight. Uh, it's about 40 years ago. Uh, I made my first trip here to the MacArthur Memorial. Uh, my mom brought me here, summer of 76, when I was about 12. She's sitting right back there. And back then, it was just the memorial. And they had an annex that was next to it. They showed the film in there. The car was kept in there. I believe this part of the area was a parking lot. And there was the small archives building, which also housed the gift shop, which was right across the square. And during the visit here, I went over to take a look at the gift shop and walked into the archives. And there seemed to be some kind of secret planning session going on there, because two of these old guys, and I called them old guys then, they were probably about my age now. So yeah, old guys. <laughs> we're in there talking very loudly over this table spread out with documents and maps. And one of them turned around and lowered his glasses and looked at me and said, you want the gift shop, which is down the stairs, which basically meant uh, it's time for me to leave. And I always remembered that, you know, that I had this kind of a run-in with somebody here at the MacArthur Memorial. Well, about 15 years later, 1990, I was getting my master's thesis over at ODU and uh, studying under Dr. Carl Boyd. I think Carl's here tonight. Are you here? Yeah, right down there. You know, my thesis advisor. And when I showed up to talk about my thesis, the first thing he said is, we will not talk about the Civil War at all, uh, which was really the only thing I knew about. And Dr. Boyd came up with the idea, why don't you go down to the MacArthur Memorial and take a look at the prospect of MacArthur and code breaking. And so that's what I did. And I came down here, rode the bus down from ODU, go into the archives, and I'm standing there, no one's there, and out of the cage, and it is a cage, because when everything first came here, it was still classified. And the army made the city build this reinforced concrete steel vault you know, to hold everything. It's probably the safest place outside the ATF gun room right down the street. And out walked this older gentleman. And he walked up to me, lowered his glasses down on his nose, and said, yes, you wish to speak. And that was my first introduction to Ed Boone, who was the same guy who had basically kicked me out of the archives some 15 years previously. <laughs> now, Ed Boone was a piece of work. He's gone now, but uh, if you didn't know him, uh, he was really something else. And I owe him a lot, because he really gave me my first job here after I got out of school as a photo cataloger. And just, uh, you know, I could tell Ed Boone stories all night and y'all would just be rolling. Uh, but just one example of Ed Boone is we had this uh, researcher come from Spain, uh, Dr. Santiago Flores, and I was there and Ed wasn't there yet and I was introducing him to the archives and everything. And Ed walks in and he's got his raincoat on because it's just pouring outside and water's just dripping down from him. And Dr. Flores sticks out his hand to shake his hand and says, yes, I am from Spain, I made the appointment with the woman to come here. And Ed looked at him and said, we ain't got no women here. And just walked right around him and left Dr. Flores standing there with his hand out ready to shake him. And that was Ed Boone, he was very gruff. Always warmed up to everyone afterward, but that's the way he was at the beginning when you met him. And I remember that first day thinking, good God, he's still here. You know, this guy's been here for 20 years. How could you work at the same place for 20 years? Well, July, this past July 1st, I started my 22nd year here. <laughs> so you get an idea of what the draw is here at the MacArthur Memorial. I mean, why leave? I get to go all over the world talking about MacArthur. And because of the MacArthur story, it deals with all these issues that range from the Civil War 
all the way through the Korean War. That's the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, occupation of Japan, the Korean War, almost 100 years of history. And every day we get stuff, nonstop, dealing with all these things. It's Christmas every day. And we say that all the time. And if you don't know it, the MacArthur Archives really is a treasure and well worth the investment that the city of Norfolk has made into it. It started out with just MacArthur's papers, about 12 major record groups. Today we have 154. And within that is record group 15, which holds over 1,000 collections of papers and memorabilia from people all over the world having to deal with anything that Douglas MacArthur dealt with. As Peggy said, we went from a few thousand to about 100,000 photographs now. A 5,000 library has turned into 25,000. We're about to get another four to 5,000 in the next few weeks. And when I started here, we had a research outlook of maybe about 300 a year. And last year, we served over 5,000 people. So it really is something to be treasured and something worth what Norfolk has invested into it. Now, at the memorial, we tried to highlight all these collections through social media, podcasts, exhibits that we do, as well as films. And that's what we started to do recently. We're working on a set of World War I films to celebrate the centennial. And I think uh, Amanda Williams, who's the educator, has premiered some of those films here. And that's what brought Stackpole Publishing uh, to me because they had heard about the World War I films, this big World War I symposium we had last November, and so they came to me and asked about a book about World War I. Well, the only thing I knew was Douglas MacArthur and the Rainbow Division, so I sent them a proposal, as they asked for, but they didn't want to do that. No worries, you know, it's all over with. A month later, they come back, hey, can you do the same thing with World War II? Douglas MacArthur is commander in the Pacific during World War II. It was a good way to highlight the memorial's collections. Photos, maps, drawings, everything that memorial has to make something that was really different about MacArthur. And so with the approval of uh, Bill Davis and the General Douglas MacArthur Foundation, I went back to Stackpole and said, sure, why not? And then Stackpole came back and said, okay, you got three months to do it. June to September, three months, my summer. Sure, why not? It was the dumbest decision I've ever made. I lost all last summer. I was totally psychotic. Three months of trying to delineate 25,000 images rolling through my head into about 400 and put a story that goes along with it. And by the end of the summer, my kids, who are here, uh, said, you know, what's wrong with Dad? <laughs> you know, what do you mean? It's perfectly normal to be drinking Budweiser's at 10.30 in the morning. <laughs> but I finished it on the day it was due to be submitted and sent it in, didn't care, it was done, it was over with. If there's any mistakes, I'll correct them in the time that comes afterward. Now about two weeks later, Stackpole gets a hold of me again, saying, wow, this is cool, you know, this is really great. It's something that we've never seen before. And my reaction was, cool, glad you like it. But then they come back with the caveat, We've got to take out all those drawings, all that artwork, all those maps, everything else that kind of made it really good. They only wanted to go with just the photos. And they said, uh, we want you to do it in a week. And I said, a week? Sure, why not? And then Stackpole sent me back everything, 
and uh, they had taken everything out and left me with a complete mess to put back together within a week. So Dr. Jekyll again was gone and Mr. Hyde returned. And I think every day uh, when I showed up for work, uh, Janice Dudley, who's the administrator, would lock the door of the cage behind me. You know, don't feed the animal. But it all turned out good. And now we have MacArthur, the Supreme Commander at War in the Pacific. The 214th book on Douglas MacArthur. <laughs> and it's now part of Stackpole's military photo series. It's a picture book. And Stackpole pumps them out pretty regularly. They appeal to young readers, uh, collectors, military history buffs. And though it is the 214th book on MacArthur, I think the strength of it really lies in the photographs. Now, over 20 years, I'd been able to see almost every book there was on MacArthur, so I knew which ones had been used and which ones hadn't. And so we were able to pop in pretty much all the ones that people hadn't. And that's what really the strength of the book is, is the photographs, because it tells the story of the campaign in the Southwest Pacific area, which is really the forgotten front of World War II. Everybody knows about Europe. Everybody knows about D-Day and then World War II. They all know about Pearl Harbor. They all know about the atomic bombs. But really, few know about that grueling war that took place in that hellhole, which is New Guinea. And so that's what this book tries to put through. I mean, most people know about the pledge, I shall return. But they don't know the story behind why it was made and how it was fulfilled. And that's what really, I hope, is what comes across in this book. Now, it's the story of the Southwest Pacific area, but it is also the story of Douglas MacArthur. And after 214 books, it doesn't seem like the interest in MacArthur is really fading out. People are still very interested. I mean, come on. The guy was retired. He's recalled back to active duty, put into a sacrifice position in the Philippines, suffers the worst defeat almost in the history of the United States forces at the hands of the Japanese, gets snatched out of the Philippines by plywood PT boats, right before the surrender, goes to Australia. Nobody's thinking he's going to go anywhere. And he puts together this campaign that marches him not only back to the Philippines to fulfill that pledge of I shall return, but then he's made supreme commander of the Allied powers and accepts the surrender of Japan. Those guys that were in command at Pearl Harbor, they all got cashiered. Their careers were terminated. But MacArthur got kept on, given a chance to redeem himself. It's really one of the great comeback stories that there is. And it's a story that is incredible and controversial. And for the past 70 years, MacArthur has been a high point of praise and the low butt of criticism because of the campaign in World War II. Now, Douglas MacArthur was a complex individual. John Curtin, he was the prime minister of Australia during World War II. And after MacArthur arrived in Australia, Curtin looked at him and said, you have been chosen by God to lead the crusade which will liberate the Pacific and restore the balance of history for the next 400 years. That's some pretty heady stuff. Especially because after a couple of months earlier, Admiral Thomas Hart, who was the commander of the Asiatic fleet in the Philippines, said, I do not believe Douglas MacArthur is altogether sane, nor has he been for quite some time. That's the dichotomy of MacArthur. There's always two sides of that coin. Like Pershing said in World War I, he put right on his efficiency report, this officer has a very high belief in his own abilities. 
But he also said, this guy is my best battlefield commander. It's kind of like you look at him and you're like, ugh. But then you're like, man, you really did all that? You know, holy cow. And that's what people recognize. Can't really get along with him, but he's got those attributes and he's got those flashes of brilliance. General Eisenhower, Dwight D. Eisenhower, went on later to become president of the United States. He said of Douglas MacArthur, he served as chief of staff in the 1930s, he said of Douglas MacArthur was the only speed reader he ever met. And he was the only guy with a photographic mind he ever met. He gave an interview to uh, D. Clayton James, who was probably the preeminent biographer of Douglas MacArthur over the past 100 years. And Eisenhower, in one sentence, says, by God, he was smart. But then in a few minutes later, he says, I told that dumb SOB not to do that. That's the dichotomy of MacArthur. You look at him at one way for one second, and then you look at him for another way in the next. A split attitude. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt called him the most dangerous man in America, but knew he needed him, knew he was brilliant. MacArthur would say of Roosevelt, he would never tell the truth if a lie would suffice. George C. Marshall, who said of Douglas and MacArthur, you don't have a staff, you have a court. Considering that MacArthur's staff was more like a royal revenue that came behind him. Secretary of War Stimson said, this guy has antagonized every single person in the War Department. But yet, when everything was hitting the fan right before Pearl Harbor, even though they have all these problems with MacArthur, that's the guy they turned to. They thought he knew more about Asia than any other officer in the United States Army. And so after the Japanese militarized Indochina and they created that US Army Forces Far East, MacArthur was made the commander. I mean, he was gone, he was retired. But they all knew he could make that contribution and that's why they picked him. But they would all be driven to exasperation throughout the war by Douglas MacArthur. No one, however, was driven more crazy about MacArthur than Admiral Ernest J. King. Ernest J. King was a commander in chief of the United States fleet during World War II. And it's said the only people he hated more than MacArthur were the British. Now, he could be quite a nasty person. And Eisenhower wrote in his diary, the best thing that could happen for the Allied war effort is for somebody to shoot Admiral King. <laughs> After the defeat in the Philippines and MacArthur's escape to Australia, King's ears were being filled by Tommy Hart's views on MacArthur's mental state. And it was because of that that King would never allow a unified command in the Pacific, which goes against all tenants of military operations. He would never give MacArthur command over his ships. MacArthur was senior to Admiral Chester Nimitz, who had the Pacific Ocean areas, but there was no way King was going to let that happen. Divided command remained throughout the war. Now, had it not been for General Marshall, George C. Marshall, who's the Army Chief of Staff, who was MacArthur's, really his greatest supporter in Washington, and probably the only man that King respected and didn't want to antagonize, that he went along with Marshall and allowed MacArthur to start this campaign in the Southwest Pacific area. 
King was always looking for a solely a Central Pacific drive under Nimitz that went straight at the heart of Japan. He thought sending resources to MacArthur in the Southwest Pacific area was completely a waste of time and resources. But because of Marshall and because MacArthur kept putting together victory after victory after victory, that dream of heading back to the Philippines was kept alive. Now, divided command was probably the key to MacArthur's success during World War II. I mean, the Japanese were kept off balance by the dual drives of the United States Navy and MacArthur Southwest Pacific Theater. Always when they were expecting to be hit at one place, the Navy would hit the next place or the Army would hit the next place and the Japanese were off balance. But it's also the best thing that could have happened for MacArthur because these people keep him in check. Now, if there had been a unified command with MacArthur, that wouldn't have happened. But because he has to recognize Halsey and Nimitz as equals, they have to work together and they have to get things worked out between them. Now, Halsey and MacArthur got along splendidly. When Halsey first went to see MacArthur, he had heard all the stories about MacArthur. But then when he got there, he's like, what's the problem? You know, they kind of liked each other. MacArthur saw Halsey as a fighter and Halsey saw him the same way. They would have shouting matches, they would have arguments. Halsey would say of MacArthur he would never use a curse word because it would ruin the eloquence of his diction. I mean, then MacArthur's very well known for his flowery prose and his ability to speak. And even though they'd get in these arguments, MacArthur would always keep it clear while Halsey would be using every four-letter word in the book. After the Admiralty's invasion, uh, which was one of the key moments in MacArthur's moves towards the Philippines. The 1st Cavalry took these islands, isolated the main Japanese base at Rabaul, and kept MacArthur's drive alive. But after it was over, Nimitz said to Halsey, hey, the Seabees are building the base there. Why don't we just keep that as a Navy base? Well, MacArthur blows his stack and says, orders out all the Navy units from the Admiralty Islands. And Halsey looks at him, you'll be hampering the war effort. And everyone's just going to see you as a big baby. Well, that was it for MacArthur. No one was going to see him as a big baby. You win, bull. You know, MacArthur was the only person who could call Halsey bull to his face. Because it wasn't something he liked, but he liked it when MacArthur said it. Nimitz, they weren't so close, but they knew how to work together. MacArthur would call Nimitz Admiral Nimitz. <laughs> but he would also say he was the greatest admiral ever produced by the United States. Now Nimitz had a picture of MacArthur that he kept on his desk. And he said, every time I feel like I need to go talk to the press, I took a look at that picture and I think twice and don't do it. <laughs> now they worked together, but towards the end of the war, a lot of bad blood was brewing. MacArthur had made some very critical statements about the Marine and Navy campaigns at Iwo Jima and Okinawa. And then they were getting ready to plan for the invasion of Japan. MacArthur is in Manila, Nimitz is in Guam. And the War Department wanted MacArthur to go out to Guam to work out with Nimitz what they could do. Well, MacArthur wasn't going to do that. I'm staying in Manila and I'm not sending my staff out there. <clears throat> so Nimitz, always the gentleman, flies to Manila. And there, waiting at the airport, is Douglas MacArthur. And he says, nope, you're not staying in Navy quarters. You're coming to stay at my house and we're gonna sit down and we're gonna work out all these problems together. MacArthur was a very different person in person than he was in all this exchange of message traffic where he was always exasperating and exacting and moody, so to speak. And that's what I mean. These people, Halsey, 
Nimitz. They kept MacArthur in check, kept him straight, unlike which would happen later on in Korea. The same is true for MacArthur's commanders in World War II. They were not yes men. MacArthur pulled this team together. General George Kinney, his air chief, head of Fifth Air Force, Far East Air Forces later on. General Walter Kruger, his infantry commander. He had the same birthday as MacArthur. He was a year younger. Admiral Thomas Kincaid was his naval commander. And Rear Admiral Dan Barbie, who was his amphibious commander, pulled all these guys together to make this team, to make this thing work in the Southwest Pacific area. Kinney was an innovator. He invented parafrags, parachute bombs, invented skip bombing, always had the ear of MacArthur. Kruger. Always that balance of caution against MacArthur. MacArthur's always like, bah, let's go everywhere. And Cruz, no, we're going to do it this way. Okay. <laughs> Kincaid would have to sit there and put up with two-hour diatribes by MacArthur against the Navy. But he could always still say no. Dan Barbie, amphibious genius of World War II. It's the guy who really put together all those amphibious operations. The only reason he was in MacArthur's theater was because Admiral King hated him just as much as he hated MacArthur. <laughs> and as long as Dan Barbie had a surfboard and a tugboat, he was going to do an amphibious invasion. <laughs> These guys all come together and learn how to become experts at triphibious warfare, land, sea, and air warfare. The idea is always acquiring new air bases, advancing land-based air power, moving the radius of the front further forward, and do another amphibious operation, grab another airfield, and keep it going all the way back to the Philippines. Now, like I said, they weren't yes men, and they were the guys that really put together everything that kept MacArthur going. Combined chiefs, the British Joint Chiefs, the American Joint Chiefs, they were always looking to shut MacArthur down, always talking about just going with this Central Pacific drive. But it was their ability to create victory after victory that kept that dream alive of going back to the Philippines. They could tell MacArthur when things weren't going to work, and they could change his mind. All had their problems with them, but they all ended up saying he was the best man to work for. They were a true team. And they, too, like Halsey and Nimitz, kept MacArthur in check. And I think had they been with MacArthur in the Korean War, none of that mess on the Yalu River would have happened. And that's the major difference between MacArthur in World War II and MacArthur in Korea. During the Korean War, he dominated or tried to dominate everyone. Most of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, most all of his commanders were junior commanders when Douglas MacArthur was already a general in France in 1918. And they couldn't tell him anything, even when they tried. MacArthur would he message traffic's all right over there. It looks like the little kids talking to the old man all the time. There was no one like Halsey, Nimitz, and those commanders that could keep him straight as they had in World War II. Now, I've tried to tell the story in here, this book, of MacArthur, his commanders, the soldiers, sailors, Coast Guardsmen, Marines, and airmen of the United States and Australia that went through World War II and that grueling campaign in the Southwest Pacific. Units, materiel, 
air and naval power, the benefits of allied code breaking, interpersonal relationships, and all the battles are told with photographs. I think most of all, though, it's tried to tell that story of I Shall Return and how it motivated the entire campaign in the Southwest Pacific and how it was brought together through fruition. The campaign to relieve the Philippines was what MacArthur considered was the moral obligation of the United States. He didn't think that America would be able to sow its face in Asia again if it did not redeem the pledge to redeem the or to liberate the Philippines. Uh, the Philippines had been an American protectorate. They had to go back or else they would never be looked on. They would be looked on as abandoning the Philippines. That's how MacArthur was able to convince Roosevelt to go along with the liberation. I mean, eventually it came down to materiel and men. But I think as far as getting Roosevelt on board, it was that moral obligation. And really no other country during World War II based strategy or a campaign on a moral obligation. It was the right thing to do, and in conjunction with the air and naval campaigns, it brought the end of Imperial Japan. Now, MacArthur went on to oversee the occupation of Japan. Today, many look at that as his greatest accomplishment, but if you read all the news stories of 1950, they'll say it was the worst and dumbest thing we've ever done. Just goes to show how perspective changed over time, and then MacArthur went into the Korean War. Brilliant amphibious operation at Incheon, and then the drive to the Yalu where he totally discounted any ability of the Chinese to come into the war and they got caught when 400,000 Chinese actually did come in. No one was there to keep him in check. He was in total control and believed his own instincts more than intelligence that had been given him. And that's what led really to the firing of Douglas MacArthur by Harry Truman. While Douglas MacArthur said, we have to go to war full scale with China to be able to end this thing now, Truman was looking for peace and Truman had to get rid of him. MacArthur came back, tumultuous welcome, 14 years away from the country, still the biggest ticker tape parade in New York history. But I think people were more welcoming home that hero of World War II rather than agreeing with what he had done in Korea. He, Retired in New York at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. They gave him some goofy deal of like a couple hundred bucks a month to stay there, whereas it cost like $1,000 a night or so. They didn't expect Gene MacArthur to live to be 101. <laughs> but served as chairman of the board, Remington Rand, and pretty much went to his grave believing the opportunity to stop China and Korea had been lost in, in Korea. Korean War. Died April 5th, buried right there. 51 years ago on April 11th, 13 years to the day after he got fired by Truman. I hope you enjoy the book. If you have any complaints or any criticisms, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> Send that to the complaint department at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov. But thanks, y'all, for coming. And uh, again, really appreciate it. Thank you.